Welcome to Fashion Talks for Industry, a special series of Fashion Talks. I'm your host, Donna Bishop. In these episodes, I will be speaking with experts across all manner of professions who will offer their insights, tools, strategies that you can use in your business, whether you are an entrepreneur or an executive, a founder or a freelancer, whether you are just starting your career or have years of experience under your belt. Hello, I hope that your week is going well. Thank you so much for being here. Today, my guest is branding and fashion lawyer and trademark agent, Ashley Froze. And if you are of the opinion that maybe you're not in any trouble, so you don't need a lawyer, or you're not an enormous business, so you don't need a lawyer, then please grab a pen because we are going to talk about all the reasons why it is beneficial and valuable to engage a lawyer across many, many phases of your business, starting at the beginning or even somewhere in the middle. Grab a pen. It's a good one. Ashley Froze, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you. I'm super excited to be here too. Thank you. So this is a topic that I think a lot of designers and other people in the fashion industry kind of like roll their heads around. We're going to talk about legals. But before we get there, how did you develop an expertise in fashion law? Give us a little bit of your history. Super, super Cole's notes. So I've been practicing for 17 years or so, which is quite aging, truth be told. Um, I started off, uh, um, I articled in, um, on Bay Street. I was on Bay Street for 10 years, fast track partner in six years. Um, when I was a junior lawyer, I launched the first fashion law blog in Canada, published the first um, legal academic article on fashion law, um, and have been instructor uh, for fashion law matters, for industry, for legal as well. Um, I've chaired Fashion Group International, I've been very involved within the legal intellectual property community as well. I chair fashion industry advisory panel for the city of Toronto and so on and so forth. And then launched my own firm six years ago after 10 years on Bay Street. And what is it about fashion law that gets your juices flowing? Because I can hear the passion in your voice already. What is it specifically about fashion that makes law so important and so exciting for you? I think that when I was on Bay Street, Bay Street is very focused on traditional industries and fashion is a huge lucrative industry that has behemoth companies and it has startup entrepreneurs as well and creatives. What I always try to do with my practice is to bridge that left brain, right brain divide so that I can help those that are not fluent in law or not fluent necessarily in business try to protect and commercialize and monetize their businesses so that they're ready for success. Um, And so I think it was a bit of a sort of, you know, when you become a fashion lawyer, and there weren't fashion lawyers per se on Bay Street, kind of before I really embraced it, it was very easily to be discounted of like, no, what are you, the fashion police and all of that crap. And I'm like, "Mm, okay, laugh at me, go for it. But actually there's a viable robust industry and it's really helping creatives reach their potential and make their passions a viable business. 
So we talked earlier, there's like a million ways and we could talk for five hours and we're going to keep this nice and contained to like a half an hour for, for folks who are listening. We're going to dispel a lot of myths about fashion and the law. So first I want to start with myth or truth. Is it just designers that need and benefit? Look, she's shaking her head already. Is it only designers who need and benefit from working with the law? So fashion industry is a massive ecosystem and it is built of many different layers. As soon as you're doing some kind of commercialization, obviously non-for-profit as well, but I'm going to focus on for-profits for the purpose of this, you are running a business. So as an example, my client roster, I have designers, retailers, agents, event producers, photographers, cosmetics, models, influencers, e-commerce service providers, or those using e-commerce, brand ambassadors, logistics, suppliers, manufacturers, app developers. It is not just your, I did a dress and I put it on a runway show. That's a very myopic view, very small view. Think of it as an entire ecosystem. I have international clients as well that are coming into the Canadian market. So it is a global, multi-layered, multi-layered industry, which makes it so interesting and cool. And is it only big, super successful individuals or organizations that need and should be engaging with law? Like at what point in an organization's or an individual's business journey, is it the right time to engage someone like yourself? So I have clients that are the full spectrum. I have clients that have an idea and they think they want to do something and they kind of want to do this or that. Then I have clients that are SMEs, like small, medium-sized business that are, have been operating. Did you call them SMEs? SMEs, yeah. Small, medium enterprise. I love that. Yeah, that's that's a Bay Street thing. Um, And so they've been operating for, you know, 10 years or so. They've got their team and they, you know, they're in the stores and they're doing their things. And then I have clients that got 30 million equity financing last year. So I have the whole gambit. The level of sophistication of the business changes, obviously, you know, but when you have a concept from the beginning, you want to make sure, have you structured your corporation properly? If you're using um, someone to help you with sketching designs, if they're an independent contractor, are you um, owning the IP? Who's owning the IP? If you're starting to get a sales agent, How are you structuring that? Is it commission-based? Is there performance obligations? So the law is omnipotent. It is always there. The level of complexity will vary. But even if you're a small designer, and let's say it's a mother who has kids, who kind of was a home caregiver, and she's 30-something, and she's like, I don't want to go back into accounting. I want to you know, I got kids clothing that I loved or whatever it is. Yeah. If she has, for example, her own house, well, let's separate her personal assets from the corporate assets and shelter her that way. That's a pretty big deal. That could really screw you up if you don't. So the law is always going to be there. You don't have to be a big behemoth. But remember, if you 
I always view everyone as on the trajectory to bring a big behemoth, but it's like a house. If you don't layer the bricks, you're letting yourself um, be exposed to risk and liability. And law is a business tool. It's about responsibility, protection, minimizing risks. It's strategy. So what I hear you saying is you don't wait until there is a crisis to engage, to engage a lawyer. As you're saying, it is the foundational bricks of your business house. So what are some of the foundations that are kind of generally everyone is going to want to give some thought to? What are those things that whether you're a sneeze or a behemoth, you're going to want to make sure you have in place? Sure. Okay. So sort of foundationally, people have the misconception that you use the lawyer when the shit hits the fan. It can happen. You can do that for sure. I have a couple of clients this week where that's happening and I'm like, Ooh. so think about it as a business tool that things will go twisted and at least you're best prepared for it. Okay. But in terms of sort of what are the legal issues that can come up? Is that what your question? Well, or, or, or what are, what are the things that we need to always make sure are kind of there at the onset? Like if I'm a, if I'm a small medium enterprise, or even if I'm, if I'm just closer to the small enterprise, what do I need to make sure I have in place that maybe I hadn't thought was so important at the beginning yeah. of my journey? For sure. So corporate structure, what is the foundation? Are you operating as a sole proprietor? Or are you operating as a corporation? Do you want to sort of separate personal liability and risk from your professional assets and personal assets? Do you have a business partner? Is it a joint venture? Is it a partnership? Or are they going to be one of the directors and a, you know, an officer on your corporation? So that's a foundation. How are you operating? Intellectual property is going to be really important because law or Fashion industry is based on creativity. Intellectual property are systems of laws that reward um, creativity. So you want to use that in contracts. Much like a baby, you know, it takes a village to raise a baby. This is your baby. There's going to be a ton of third parties that are helping you. Co-founder, independent contractor, employee, supplier, distributor, sales agent, designer, manufacturer influencers, all of that stuff, you really are best served when you are operating under written contract, because the written contract deals with deliverables, liabilities, risks, what happens if they don't do this, what are the payment terms, who owns the IP, what are the restrictions and what they can do with it, and so on and so forth. So it's really foundational to how are you actually operating with these third parties. Well, and it sounds like IP and contracts are kind of two of the, not largest, but most common maybe buckets that concern a lot of fashion entrepreneurs, organizations, individuals. So let's dig into those yeah. those a little bit. So IP, like immediately I think to counterfeit design, yeah. Yeah. where else does IP fall into? How would you broadly describe that for people who might be saying like, IP, what? Like, I'm a creative director. Do I, like, I don't really make, like, how does it apply to the industry? Yeah. IP is for you if you're a creative director. Okay. So there's five foundational tenets of IP. The first one is patents, that this goes towards the protection of inventions. 
people are like, it doesn't really count. Well, think about it. You know, those sort of stain resistant, um, wrinkle resistant types of fabric, patent protection, the bra was patent protected. So if you are dealing with something that is the legal test is non-obvious, inventive, um, et cetera, then that would be patent protection. How you brand it, just do it. Nike, the swoosh, those are trademarks. Copyright would be your sketchbooks, your, um, uh, the designs, the sort of how you, the fabrics even. Um, so, you know, you can certainly, you know, certainly use copyright protection. Industrial design is an interesting thing, bit of a sleeping giant, but it's very strategically interesting. So if you take a utilitarian article and you make it highly aesthetic, hmm, sounds familiar, it is possible that industrial design protection would exist. Crocs, they've been using it a lot and they've been enforcing their rights with it. So interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. By the way, go to froslaw.com. There's like newsletter blogs on this kind of stuff. It's super cool. So there's go patents, trademarks, industrial design, and copyright. Those are some you don't need to get a registration, some you do, some you're best served to get a registration because it gives you certain advantages. Some say that you can grant rights to third parties, license, assign, all of that stuff, only if there's a written agreement. So you got to know what you're doing. Basically, IP was created, intellectual property was created. If you created this, whatever the sort of uh, type of IP it is, then the government will give you, reward you with a monopoly, 10 years, 15 years, lifetime of the author plus. So it's sort of this reward system that increases the, it turns your creativ creativity into an asset base. Because I own this, I have the exclusive rights to it and I can prevent you from using it or I can monetize and license it out to you so that you pay me a royalty or whatever. Then there's also, so I said there's five, there's trade secrets, competitive advantage. You know, if you have a list of the top sales agents in Canada, or if you're a publicist and you know all of the media that does this or that, that's things that's competitive advantage to you. Proprietary secrets, confidential, it's a trade secret. The only way to protect that is to have your right infrastructure set up and also contractual obligations to third parties who you disclose it to. So there's so much in there that is protectable yes. or could be made profitable yeah. if you set it up properly from the beginning. Because this sure. might be stating the obvious, but what I hear you saying is when it is not set up from the get-go, it's it's harder to do things in reverse than to have it established yeah, from the beginning. Totally. 100%. And there's this misnomer that, you know, what was it? Coco Chanel said, imitation of the sincerest form of flattery. I mean, Chanel has a very robust, like, legal department. Trust me. There yeah, Coco might have said it, but the conglomerate does not. <laughs> and then there's also this misconception throughout the fashion industry. And sometimes I find a little bit through law that you can't really protect your fashion designs. Well, like 15 years ago, I wrote an, you know, an article, like an academically published in legal, um, legal journal 
on how you can. And here's a strategy. So, you know, if you look at it even foundationally, like Crocs and uh, the bra and types of fat, like there's just, there's a lot of things there, but it's strategy and thinking about your creativity in a business way. And do you have clients who come with, you know, perhaps the beautiful mindset of this isn't something anyone's ever going to want to knock off or it's going to be so hard to knock off that no one's going to be able to do it, that they don't see the value in doing that from the get-go. Yes. Yes. And one of the things I do tell my clients is stop telling me what you want to hear and start listening to what you need to hear. So we see this all the time. I see this all the time. You know, remember also, I sort of work within a global system because, you know, we're not just dealing with Canada. If you're just focused on Canada, you're kind of selling yourself short. So, you know, what what we have now is technology, e-commerce, the internet, micro-influencers. And so there's a huge democratization of brands that can get out there. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really easy to get a global presence very quickly and for it to be compounded and to go viral very quickly, which is awesome. But it also means that there's haters out there, there's nefarious people, or there's just people that are a bit dappy and don't really get it. You know, they think, oh, well, whatever. I saw it and I've, it's inspiration for me that... You know, I see obviously counterfeiters, you know, I see um, ISPs, you know, the Amazons and the Etsy's and I see those kinds of things and we enforce with that. I also see brand trolls in China, for example. So I help my clients to make sure that, you know, their brand isn't going to be taken hostage by. What is a brand troll? So there are people that will register a trademark in a different country or in your country before you've even secured your rights. So we have this happen. I enforce against this all the time. And actually large brands also deal with this issue too. And I can talk about that at a later point. Um, and so they'll either use domain names. You know, if you got the DonnaBishop.com, they'll got they'll get the DonnaBishop.ca or the Don Bishop or, you know, something like that. So you know, the brand trolls will register your trademarks or register your confusingly similar trademarks. So that's a legal test. Your Instagram handles, your um, uh, websites, domain name registrations that are similar as well. They'll start to sell comparable kind of products through other third-party platforms. So I see this happen a lot. We can enforce against it, but you're much better served by having exclusivity, government-recognized exclusivity to your rights to it. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of that excellent point, which was if you're only thinking of Canada, you're thinking too small. So what's an example of a Canadian organization that should be setting their sights beyond Canada? Like, what do you mean by that at at this stage of the game? Or do you have an example of, of, of that can kind of drill that home? Yeah, like I'm not going to give specific examples because, you know, legal. I, I, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh. Not that way. So, you know, what I can say to my clients when they come in, okay, you're based out of Canada. Let's get your corporate structuring dealt with. 
Where are your suppliers? Where are you manufacturing? What is that whole supply chain? Where are you anticipating selling? Generally, I find my clients will be the jurisdictions, because law is a country by country basis, apart from Europe, where there's some nuances to that. But generally, I find that Canadians care about Canada. The population is 30 million or 36 million or something. The population of California is 30 million. So, you know, Canadians will go into the States pretty, pretty quick. So Canada, the States, English speaking is obviously makes life a lot easier. So we go to Europe. England um, is a big destination. Interestingly, I find a lot of Australian companies knock off Canadian. I find there's that kind of, yeah, it's interesting. And it's come up quite a few times with domain name registrations or um, comparable things. I think maybe it's a Commonwealth kind of connect. And then it depends on where they're sourcing their materials and where are they manufacturing, South America or India? Are they getting fabrics from Turkey? Or are they looking to sell in Dubai? or um, manufacturing in China. Like it's that whole supply chain. So you know how I said there's certain advantages with registering your IP. One of them, for example, is that you have much easier time in enforcing your rights with Facebook disputes or Amazon disputes or domain name disputes, but you can also take your registrations and register it depending on the country because every law is different, but you can also register it with customs borders to try and make sure that the flow of counterfeit or unauthorized or gray market goods doesn't flow out of the country. So it's good. And you were just at the luxury law conference and there was a really interesting story about Manilow Blahnik. Can you share that? Because I think sometimes it's easy to think that once you're a big brand Mm -hmm. that you are no longer susceptible to some of these things as well. Yeah, totally. So, so as part of my, you know, you, you know me in the fashion industry, but I, you know, I'm very much involved in the lawyer industry. So I've been going to these international conferences throughout my entire uh, professional career. And it's, you know, me and this conference was very boutique. So it was me and a thousand lawyers. And it was a luxury law conference in London, England, which was so cool. If you're a nerd like me, like, honestly, it was like, it was really exciting. So, um, they had as one of the speakers in-house counsel from Manila Blahnik. And they were talking about how they had run into a brand troll in China who had registered Manila Blahnik wordmark before Manila Blahnik Corporation could actually uh, register it. So because there's different nuances to the laws and different cultures behind, um, they had a really hard time enforcing their rights and getting ownership of their rightful trademark, their namesake brand. They talked about sort of changing, um, and this is all part of a public conference, so I'm allowed to talk about this. And I'm also not a lawyer for Manila Blahnik, unfortunately, so I'm not disclosing things. Um, and so they um, they talked about changing their brand to being an MB or whatever, because they were running in such an issue. Anyways, it took them 20 years to finally get the rights to Manila Blahnik in China. Wow. Crazy. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm messaging my clients. And I'm like, well, remember how he told you that you weren't sure or whatever. Like, we got you a trademark registration in a two year process and you have the rights. Because it's not only China as a counterfeiting, you know, problem, 
but it's also a huge opportunity commercially. You know, it's, it's a growing economy. It's a consumer economy. The millennial population is 250 million. You get a little chunk of that, you know, but looking ahead and sort of securing your rights and putting your foot in the, like your foot in the door in different um, jurisdictions is really helpful. So two, two key takeaways I hear you saying about IP is don't assume something is unprotectable or unprofitable and it's never too soon yes. to register it. Exactly. Yes. Let's move on to contracts because I know that's another big yeah. topic for yeah. fashion entrepreneurs, organizations, behemoths, smizes. What is it about? Like, let's talk about contracts because I'm sure there are people who are thinking, well, I can just like Google like employment tr contract or marketing contract and I'll get what I need. What are some of the nuances that people are missing if they think they can just find a free version of a contract on the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would say that every contract should be specific to the actual business dealings that you have in hand. So your distribution agreement is going to be very different from your supplier agreement than your manufacturing agreement, than your influencer marketing agreement. They're all very different. Whatever you get off the internet, A, you don't know necessarily the quality of it. B, I get contracts and they're, they make no sense or they're, they're, it's not cohesive in their approach. And I'm like, okay, what's the business achievement that you're trying to get? And let's reverse engineer this. Then sometimes it'll be like, you know, it's a contract that's governed by California law. And I'm like, mm, well, neither party is in California. So this is not going to benefit you as much. So, you know, in the end, contracts are, if you took take a practical look, it's who's responsible for what, what if shit goes wrong? Who, how is it going to be dealt with? What are the deliverables? What is the payment? And so on and so forth. So I've got this article on my website that it goes through. And we'll link all those. We'll link your yeah, website yeah. below so people can go and explore all the great content that you no, have there. It's just, it goes through like 10 different points of what are all these things. If you're licensing your IP, well, what if there's new IP that's created? Or what is the currency that you're paying in? If you've got an American and a Canadian company, it's going to cost you a lot more money if you're paying in the U.S. and if it's not in there. Do you know what I mean? Like, what if they don't deliver? Or what if there is a force majeure? Or, you know, it, what if they terminate? Who's going to be responsible for what? Or what if there's work in progress? How do you get that back? Who's responsible for shipping? And all of that kind of stuff, it's really important. And it's even foundationally sort of, you know, I have clients that are like, well, I thought this and they thought that. But did you get anything in writing? Not really. Do you have like at least a text message? Like, and then I'm dealing with tech. Like, I kind of have this thing. And you know me, I tend to be more straight up with people. If you want to have a hobby, go play. If you want to have a business, let's do business. You know what I mean? Like, and if the law overwhelms you, don't do it. Let someone else do it. Like I started my own business and I'm not an accountant for sure. I got an accountant. That's what they do. That's their job. That's what their thing. So I think it's really important to position yourself in a way that you're strategically sound and protected. I can only imagine, I'm just having this thought now because I remember when COVID hit and force majeure was something that was yeah. You, you know, it was getting a lot of like, what is it? Is this this? Is it not? 
Was that a wake-up call for a lot of people that without proper contracts and foundations and processes in place, that when the unforeseeable happens, you can yeah. really be left high and dry? Like, am I right in that yeah. in that kind of assessment? Yeah, because the force majeure, it's sort of like you have a contract and then like on the, the last two pages, it's like, you know, who is the, what's the force majeure and what's the governing law and how do you do disputes and all of that kind of stuff. It's like the small print stuff that no one really pays attention to. But what a force majeure is, because people don't really understand it, it's that if there's an inability to perform because of a flood or terrorist act or a global pandemic, are you going to be held accountable to it? And is there a breach of contract? Can you be sued for the non-performance or is excusable for a period of delay or a you know, they have to make it right somehow. It's that's what it is. Something went wrong that was outside of your control. And you guys have to figure out, well, what happens? Do you know what I mean? So it could be they can't get the fabric in time, but because of the force majeure, contractually, they are obligated to get the next best thing in the fastest delivered time possible or whatever it is, as an example. Are there any other examples, just as we're getting ready to wrap up, because I know everything is so specific and and really curated around the business that is engaging around like, well, what is the business and whether I am dealing with manufacturing overseas will be different than if it's here, which will be different if I'm a service provider or an events person yeah. or, or an influencer, as you were saying. But is there anything else that kind of applies generally that you feel is so important no matter where you are in your business or in the world that please please fashion entrepreneurs right. think of this as you are moving forward with your business as it relates to legals yeah can i just say i can't believe half an hour flew by it felt like five minutes oh my goodness okay so contracts intellectual property corporate structuring the whole supply and distribution chain management including the e-commerce, data. Data is a huge issue. Marketing and advertising law. The government keeps on saying time and time again over the last five years, influencer marketing falls under the ambit of Competition Act and they're watching for that, especially in the States. The federal bar, the, the federal's um, marketing, I forget the word, the actual department, but they've been issuing out letters and letters and letters saying you're not compliant with our marketing laws. Packaging and labeling, especially for cosmetics goods. Now you're starting to fall under the umbrella of Health Canada. So is it a drug? Is it a cosmetic? It's a whole thing. Are you using um, uh, types of uh, ingredients that you can't use? All of that kind of stuff. International laws. Just because you're Canadian doesn't mean that you're and you're you know operating in different countries. You got to work with someone that knows how to navigate that whole global thing, licensing agreements as well, super important in a nutshell. Just a few things. Yeah. So <laughs> Ashley, I, I am now an individual who I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm ready to engage a lawyer. Like I understand now the importance. Yeah. How does a person go about choosing a lawyer. I mean, obviously we'll link your contact info yeah, below sure. in the show notes in case people yeah. are interested in reaching out to you. But if they live someplace where they want to be able to sit face to face with someone, yeah. how do you choose? 
Okay, so you as when you're talking about an industry focused lawyer, a fashion lawyer, or a music lawyer, for example, you want to make sure that they know the industry, the creative industry, the fashion industry well. How involved are they? Curating, you know, cute outfits on Instagram, not really like enough, but are they really deeply entrenched in the actual industry itself? That's one part. And then the other part is how deeply entrenched are they in the legal community as well? How experienced are they? What is their experience with other clients? You know, it's there's a confidentiality fiduciary duty. So it's up to the lawyer's clients to confirm whether or not they'll publicly disclose that they work with them. How in like how much have they contributed or how much are they peer reviewed by their legal industry? It's a whole sort of um, there's a lot of opportunities to get speaking engagements, published, um, peer reviewed awards. The legal industry is really, really um, you can get very integrated into that. How long have they been practicing for and have they had law schools great academically? but it doesn't teach you about the indemnifications and the reps and warranties and what is this and what is that and where do you attorn and how do you dispute, you know, and adjudicate. And so how much experience have they had practically and under a lot of mentorship? I was on Bay Street for 10 years for a reason. Do you know what I mean? So it's that kind of stuff that you, you can ask the questions and meet with a lot of different people. How do they do their payments? What is their expectation? You know, what kind of clients have they dealt with? Is it just startups? That's great. But you also want to have someone that has the experience that has dealt with more complex things too. Do you know what I mean? So it, and it's also, do you want to work with them? You know, you want to be with someone that will be your trusted advisor for the duration of your business. You know, is it going to be, you know, an old fuddy-duddy fart that's super hierarchical and doesn't really you know, want to deal with, you don't want to deal with, like, there's that thing too. Ash, just before we, we wrap up, I'm wondering if you have an example, obviously no name names, yeah. if it's someone from your own roster, but where there is someone or an organization that did have those things in place and something happened and it's a good, a good news story because things worked out for them because they had their legal house in order. Yeah. So a couple of examples. So, you know, business owners where one went to sell out to the other one, they got the right shareholders agreements. They got all of that stuff done properly. That's one. Um, contracts where things went sideways and we were able to enforce rights because it was that fact pattern was set out in the contract. Um Oh gosh, we've got a domain name dispute where they've got their registration sorted out. So it's a lot easier to sort of prove that they have the rights. It, it comes up a lot. Um, Ex-employees or ex-independent you know, independent contractors are starting to do some weird things. Well, no, actually, contractually, you were bound by this. So, you know, you should be... Um, uh, brand trolls in China, you know, we've, they're starting to register domain names with the .cn and we've already secured the rights there. So it's a lot of these kinds of things. It's like a checkbox, checkbox. Okay. We've got this, we've got this, we've got this. Um, it makes it all 
a lot licensing agreements as well. Well, no, the term of the agreement was you could do it this amount of time for this limited type of use. And now you're doing it for a longer period in something that wasn't contemplated. You are a client money. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's ever evolving. There's a dynamicism that I hear you talking about as well. As business opportunities evolve, different legal issues will come up and it's sort of a constant, a continuum, right? Ash, I know we could continue to talk about this for a long, long time. How can people learn more about Froze Law, reach out, follow what you're doing? Where can they find you? Okay. So go to the firm's website, frozelaw.com. You'll put a link in there. It's a funny spelling, but whatever. And then go to the blog section. Every week for like six years, I write articles and it's there to help you and educate you and tear down that ivory tower construct of law. Every week, I also issue out newsletters. Subscribe to that. So at base foundation, yeah, sure, hire me. But what I also really try to do is to help educate and elevate the industry so that they can learn, okay, why is this important? Why do I need to think about that? Just start with that. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate you taking the time to share this expertise. I know it will uh, be a lot of value to a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Donna. Thank you so much for being here today. Fashion Talks is written, produced, and hosted by me, Donna Bishop. And there is a link below in the show notes if you'd like to get in touch. Thank you to CAFA, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards, Jason Perrier, technical producer, and to Nick Crane for the amazing artwork. Hope you'll join me here again soon.